And I watched BDMs get frustrated and struggle. And I need to figure out a solution to this problem. Companies want massive sales growth. And in order to have that massive sales growth, you need to make sure that your ops are also ready to handle the influx of new properties that are coming on board. Typically, the process is just only exist in somebody's mind. Whether that's a key employee or that is the owner of the company, the processes only exist up here. Mm -hmm. And so it's harder to track. It's harder to know specifically what your numbers are, specifically how you are performing on key parts of your processes. And so they're in somebody's head, which is, I think, the most dangerous place for your processes to be. But typically, everyone thinks it's going fine. Like, yeah, everything's good. We, we've got processes. We're managing the properties. And I'm like, but where are they? Where are the processes? And they just simply don't exist. <laughs> Welcome to the episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast. Today, I am talking to Kristen Lopez from PM Path Builders. Kristen, thanks for coming on the show. Jordan, I am so excited to be here. Yeah. So yeah. you and I have known each other for some time now. Yeah. I originally met you during your tour of duty at Renscale. Yes. And you've been in the industry for a while, including mm -hmm. before that. How did you get your start in property management? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I was looking for looking for a job. I needed one. I was wholesaling properties uh, before that, and it was not my jam. It was pretty hard on me. I consider myself more empathetic, and so nobody's who wants to wholesale their property is in a good situation. So I was getting really burnt out quickly. But, but I like this part of the story. I think the whole wholesaling thing is really interesting. I get, I get like the burnout, but like I yeah. actually want to get into some of the guts of that. Yeah, like, absolutely. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, I was wholesaling for a company that was out of Austin, and so I was wholesaling in San Antonio and Austin, and so I was boots on the ground. Primarily just going in and talking with the um, with the potential sellers and figuring out, you know, pain points, what's going on, what's going wrong here. So this is some hard negotiation. Yes, because then after you like the really it, it was a tactical sales like you are doing in your face sales because you're sitting down and you're creating a relationship with somebody because the first thing I would do is go in and have a, a conversation, you know tell me what's happening, show me your financials, where are we at, what is, like, what do you need to sell this property? After that, I would walk around the property and I would make an estimate of how much it would cost for us to fix it up. Because the way that we uh, did our pricing was, it was whatever the after repair value would be. We would offer 65% of that minus our repair costs. So I would need to, I got pretty good at being able to price out, you know, San Antonio, you're in Austin, San Antonio, we have foundation issues. So you always have to factor in foundation needs to be fixed and the houses are not in great shape. So going around and just estimating repair costs, figuring up what that number would be. And then depending on how far off I was from somebody, have to go in and then look somebody in the face and be like, I know you need $60,000, but the best offer I can make is 45. And here is why. So really having to tell someone, this is what your house is worth and give them the reasons why. So it was a very interesting sales process. This there. is your first sales job? No, no, okay. no, no. My first sales job was actually on the phone. I did cold calling for a uh, residential real estate company. And so I was cold calling all day for eight hours a day. That was my first sales job. Do you have a high pain threshold? Do you oh, do I do. Cold, cold because, calling to yes. wholesaling. What was so funny is I had this realization that <laughs> my first sales job was cold calling. I assumed that that is how sales was just done. I didn't know anything about sales. I had no idea. I thought that everybody cold called. I just thought that that's the way it was as a young kid, 20 years old. And I'm like, sure, give me the phone. Like I can just make it happen. And so that is how I got into it because I didn't know any better. And I just learned and I built up that muscle because it's the way I thought it was supposed to be mm -hmm. and just dove into it. So that was my first sales job. And then I did some commercial leasing, worked with some uh, franchise reps nationwide uh, to help place franchises and franchisees in different cities per their specs of what they needed for their space. They're all like retail-based businesses. And then I went into wholesaling. Got it. So the wholesaling dynamics are interesting because you are dealing with distressed sellers. Oh, yeah. And it can be uncomfortable. I totally 
get that. I don't have strong opinions about it, but I get the tension there. Mm-hmm. So you're doing that. It's it's not you know quite what you found fulfilling long term. Yeah. And then you pivot into. Yeah, into uh, then I went in. I actually applied to be a property manager uh, with Brad Larson at RentWorks. And as soon as I walked in there, Brad looked at me. He's like, you are not a property manager. You are a salesperson. So would you like to be my salesperson? I said, okay, sounds great. And it was just like it was that immediate. I think Brad and I were able to build a rapport pretty quickly. And so he offered me the job like right on the spot. I said yes. And I started the next day. So you're crushing leads, taking inbound yeah, it was um, it was great. But I, I had always thought property management because I came from the real estate side of the world of, of selling um, residential properties. Everybody kind of looked down on property management. They were like, nobody needs that. Like, we can just do it. And so I had this stigma almost of property management. And then to be thrown into it, I had a, like a large learning curve because it was much different than what I thought. And it actually paired together all of the things I learned when I was wholesaling and all of the things that I learned whenever I was doing that cold calling for residential teams to be able to bring that knowledge of understanding of real estate, real estate investing helped me in property management and made me realize, oh, this is actually a vehicle for people to achieve what they actually want to do. Whatever their dreams are, whatever their hopes are, you can do that through having a good property manager. And so it took me a while to really understand the strength that property management is and what it has and what it can provide for people. So how long was your stint at RentWorks? It was almost two years. And what kind of lead volume were you dealing with there? Oh, quite a lot. I mean, there was weeks where we would get in like 30, 35 leads a week. And then somewhere we'd get in like 18 or so. But we never really dipped lower than 18 to 20 leads a week. And it was myself and another BDM. So there was two of us and we were a team together. And so that was my my first introduction there. I don't, and then I don't even remember the context of how you came into RentScale. It was like a while ago. What, what was the bridge and the connection of going from RentWorks to RentScale? Yeah, absolutely. So I was looking for a change. I get restless uh, pretty easily. And so I was like, I, I want to do something else. And I remembered that I had met you and Jeremy at Sales Mastery mm. in I Southern States, maybe like Whatever, a conference. You guys did a a sales mastery there, and I attended. And I won Objection Ball, so I met you guys. I remember that. And uh, so I just, like, reached out to Jeremy. And I was like, hey, can I chat with you for a minute? And so I hopped on the phone with Jeremy, and I was so nervous. And I was, like, shaking. I'm in the car, and I'm like, hey, Jeremy. (laughs) Um, But I I just asked him. I said, "Uh, I'm looking to make a change, and I was curious if you're looking to add anyone to your team. If so, I would be, like, I would love to join your team. Mm. And so I just asked, and you guys talked, and you guys said yes. And so that was that. Was that. I remember having mm-hmm. lunch with you at Max yeah. at Rancho shortly thereafter. It's one, one of my favorite spots. Yeah. And then you came on the team, and what, what were you doing at Rinscale? Yeah, so I was coaching uh, the business development managers. I was running Scale Club, which was so much fun. It was a blast. I had never coached before, so I remember at the beginning of that dealing with a lot of imposter syndrome of like, can I actually do this? What am I doing here? But then I just remember thinking like you and Jeremy saw something in me that at that time I didn't see in myself. So I was like, okay, there's a reason that I'm here and a reason that I'm doing this so I can push through and I can do this. So I was coaching BDMs. So you went from being a BDM yeah, to, coaching. to coaching BDMs yes. and your stint at Rentscale lasted roughly? I'd like two and a half years, two years, eight months, something like that, almost three years. And then unbelievably, you stay in the industry by moving from RentScale to Rescover. Yes. And what were you doing at Rescover? (laughs) I was an account executive. I was selling uh, the Rescover software to property managers because um, when I saw Rescover and what it was doing, it brought back the memories of like doing my outbound calling. Mm-hmm. When I was at RentWorks doing outbound there of, you know, just trying to find new people to talk to. And with the Rescover software, it did it in seconds in front of my face, things that took me weeks to try to farm out and find. And I was like, this is cool. And I just felt, I don't know, I go a lot by my gut feelings. Yeah, and totally. so I had just had a gut feeling of like, I need to I need to do this. Like I need to pursue this opportunity. And so I did. I jumped and I was at Rescover for about eight months. 
Okay, so you're mm-hmm. at, and then, and that brings us to today. where I'm at today. This is a, this is a <laughs> I know it's a whole journey. Yeah, I mean, you're young, but this is like a lot of jumps here, yes. all within different dimensions of real estate and property management. Yes. And that brings us to today. Yes. Tell us about what PM Path Builders does. Absolutely. I'm very excited about it. Um, so PM Path Builders started because I had another friend in the industry that said, hey, I have somebody who needs to build out their processes. Can you help them? And I was like, yeah, sure. Absolutely. I can do it. And as I'm in the midst of like helping, um, you know, this company to really work out what their processes are and documenting all of it down and doing what they asked, I was like, I really like this. I I think that I can do this. And so then I found um, a partner who she has been a property manager. She has been a leasing manager. She's been a BDM and she has worked within the industry for about nine years. She knows the ops. And I was like, you're perfect. Would you like to do this with me? And she said, absolutely. So then we decided to start a business. And that and, brings us to today. And that brings us to where we are today. And so uh, it, it came born out of a problem that I was trying to solve. And that problem was, you know, companies want massive sales growth. And in order to have that massive sales growth, you need to make sure that your ops are also ready to handle the influx of new properties that are coming on board. And I watched BDMs get frustrated and struggle because they're like, oh, my ops team sucks or my ops team can't handle this or, you know, just different things like that. And I was like, oh, this is a problem. Like, and I need to figure out a solution to this problem. And so the solution that I believe right now, um, which my mind may change and it may morph into something else, but right now it's just documenting the actual processes and making sure that they're built out in lead simple and that somebody is able to come through and just follow them step by step by step. And that is my first crack at solving this problem here is just making sure that it's actually written down and it's taken out of somebody's head and it's put into a document, put into a system so that it can be easily used and followed. So process documentation is interesting because the half-life of any form of documentation is somewhat limited. There's a really significant decay rate because the company changes, because your right. process changes, because you grew, because somebody left, whatever. How do you think about the half-life of process documentation? How long is it relevant for? It's a great question. I think that it depends for each company, right? It can be as much as six months, right? Every six months we need to come back in and we need to do it. And that's why at our company, we stay on with people for like on call for at least six months, because the goal is that we follow up with them and we say, Hey, how's everything going? And if there's significant change in that time period, okay, now we can restart an engagement. So we stay on for six months because we believe the SOP should be good for at least six months at Mm -hmm. a time. And so that's kind of the cadence that we're following on is like every six months checking in and making sure and see what changes. But for some people, they, their processes stay the same and they don't change because they don't want to hire anybody. They want to like stay as the owner, operator, property manager, and be that solopreneur. That's not right. Solopreneur. Solopreneur. Yeah, yeah. that word. Got it. Thank you. It just didn't sound right. Um, but they want to stay and do that. Or, you know, it's a husband and wife team and they want to just continue working in the business. So things don't change quite as rapidly. But when new softwares come on or, you know, different things like that, that's definitely a trigger for whenever new procedures need to be built out for those. And so what's the state of the business typically when you start working with someone? Yeah. So typically um, the process is just only exist in somebody's mind. Whether that's a key employee or that is the owner of the company, the processes only exist up here. Mm -hmm. And so it's harder to track. It's harder to know specifically what your numbers are, specifically how you are performing on key parts of your processes. And so they're in somebody's head, which is, I think, the most dangerous place for your processes to be. But typically... Everyone thinks it's going fine. Like, yeah, everything's good. We, we've we got processes. We're managing the properties. And I'm like, but where are they? Where are the processes? And they just simply don't exist physically. Physically yeah. they don't exist. They exist mentally, but not physically. Got it. So then what like, what do you experience the client? What, what insight comes for the client through going through the process of taking it from idea to actually proper documentation. What I love is whenever there are, um, like there's a key team member and the owner on a call and the team member is, is doing a process the way that they've figured out to do it. And the owner is like, what? 
what do you mean that's the way that you're doing it? That's not the way that we want to do it. So then we get into this conversation around, okay, why are we doing it this way? What is the ideal scene? What is the problem that we're trying to solve here? And let's figure out how we can make this together because a lot of times the employer or the owners are off doing other things, right? They are off working on the business and they're trying to grow it and they're working on different ideas and the employees are playing catch up and they're trying to patchwork things together and trying to figure out the best way for them to be able to do their job. And so whenever these two come together, it is the ideal versus the actual. And so kind of diving into that is to me the most fun part to be able to kind of uh, just mediate those conversations back and forth to figure out for them what works best, what matches the owner's expectations and what is happening and what works well for that employee. Because what I never want to happen is an employee to feel like the way that they've been doing their job is wrong because it's not. They've been doing it that way for however long they've been doing it. And I don't want the owner to feel like what they want is not valid. So trying to find that middle ground between the two is um, typically what happens on the calls. And so what does that collaboration look like? Who are you talking to? Are you talking to one part or the other? Are you talking to both in terms of like team and owner? So typically it will be the the key team member. So by that, either senior property manager or sometimes people just have one property manager or the business development manager, the maintenance person, whoever is overseeing the process as a whole is who I want on the call. I'm not a fan of having the entire team. That's too many cooks in the kitchen. And so we want really the leadership and decision makers to be able to come together because I'm finding that it's not very often that the actual tactical parts of the process are sat down and discussed with the like with leadership in between different people. Instead, it's they go off and they figure out their own process that works best for them. And then that's never relayed back to the team. So sometimes things change or things the team member realizes that something is just inefficient. It's faster if I do it this way. And that's never relayed back to everyone else on the team. So there's a lot of, you know, things just that just come out of the meeting of just what works best there, but less people leadership on the calls for sure. And the people that are actually carrying out the processes. What's in it for the team member? What does the team member get out of going through this exercise? Yeah, I, I love... Uh, working with team members because my my goal at the beginning whenever I tell them I'm like the whole reason that we're doing this is so you can take a vacation like when is the last time that you took a vacation like I can't right there are so many property managers that are like I can't even take a vacation because I have too many properties like who's going to be able to step in and do this and so that's kind of like the a big reason why to work with us is because once everything's documented you can have somebody step in for you for a week and you can go and take time off and you don't have to feel bad about if you're sick one day or if something like, you know, just something comes up, you can have the peace of mind to go and do something else because everything is out of your head and it can be easily followed by somebody else to be able to take on these tasks for you to where you can now relax and we can take some of the things off your plate. We can build templates, like we can just make things faster and easier for you. And so for the employees, that's the benefit for them is really being able to have a duplicatable and repeatable process that once they feel good about it, they can pass off tasks to other people and they can relax a little bit and they don't have to feel like the weight of the world is on their shoulders. Where do you see this process planning going off the rails? Is it like processes that are like, overly detailed, not detailed enough? What, what have you experienced as kind of the sweet spot of like yeah. doing that piece well? So I think that for me, it is like every single step of the process. I remember this activity. I was in sixth grade, okay? And we were talking about documenting scientific process. And our teacher gave us homework to write out the steps to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And I will never forget sitting in class and everybody is like shouting out like all of the answers. And she's like, no, like I can't make the peanut butter and jelly sandwich because nobody told me to open the bag, like open up the bag of bread. And so that always plays in my mind of like, I have to tell people to open up the bag of bread first. And so like making sure that the steps are detailed enough to where it's the high points of like everything that needs to be done to essentially make your peanut butter and jelly sandwich. So making sure that like the the obvious stuff is actually yeah. spoken to. Log into Lead Simple, <laughs> like yes, like log into Lead Simple. Hit this button. Do the, like and making sure that it is enough to where 
if somebody is coming in and they don't have property management experience and they're trying to learn how to do their job, they can pull up the page of how to do a process or how to do something and they can follow step by step in there to understand, okay, this is how I'm supposed to do this. No, that's a little bit opinionated because when you, the types of people that are using this could be anybody mm -hmm. from uh, a global team member that has no context whatsoever right. to a 30-year veteran coming sure. out of portfolio that kind of already feels like the CEO of what they're doing, et cetera. Yeah. Um, tell me about that. Tell me about like what would differ in the approach that you take based on the structure of the company or this type of team member that you're working with. Yeah, absolutely. So definitely my approach to how I talk to the um, the team members there is different from the engagement perspective. However, to me, nothing changes on the output of the documentation Dancy. of the process because that team member who feels like the CEO Maybe they leave. Maybe they leave in two weeks after we're done with our processes. What are you as the owner going to do? Like, mm -hmm. so it's more so my approach to how I talk to them, how I empower them, how I'm asking them for, you know, like advice or I'm it, just in the structure of how I'm conducting the calls definitely changes. The end product does not change because it is that document is for the company's protection because a lot of times that employee who has been there for a long time who does know all of the processes they only exist in their head and if they left work if they won the lottery and said hey boss i'm not coming in the owner's screwed because that person has been shouldering and doing all of the work up until this point now nobody knows how to do this person's job so the documentation is exactly the same no matter what how i conduct the calls is definitely different what i think is interesting about like the workflow uh, visualization abstracted from the software mm -hmm. is that by disconnecting the two, it forces you to think through conceptually in a really kind of pure high level kind of way, not driven based on the limitations of a piece of software, but just with no constraints whatsoever, how would we like this to work? Right. The beauty about tying it to a piece of software is that then you have a framework to make sure that the execution yes. of the task actually stays on track. So what does that look like to to translate from you've gone through this exercise, you've documented it, it's clear, everybody agrees, it's visualized to now putting it in a place that's actually going to like where it's going to happen on an ongoing basis. Right. So we offer trading as well for implementation because if the company has not been using Lead Simple or software like that, they're not going to start doing it just because now all of their processes are inside of of this software. So we we do a couple of things. Number one, we build this very beautiful chart of just because multiple processes happen at once. So we like draw out for everybody the processes that happen at one time and then we show them and do trainings throughout um, of how to start using the process, but mostly making sure that they understand that this is a benefit because whenever you get a new software, at first it's hard. Like it, this is going to take me longer. It's just easier if I do it the other way. Yeah, that is all valid. Like that is completely valid. Yes, it is going to be hard up front. However, the long run of that, of being able to then get good at it, get faster, be able to make your processes go smoother is well worth it. So we that's why we stay on with the team and make sure that the implementation happens. Because writing a document, that's one thing, right? Like I, I would go as far to say that like almost anybody could just write an SOP document, listen to somebody, document it out. But making sure that the team adopts the new softwares and the new systems that are being put into place, that is where I see a big value that we have because of the way that we're able to talk to people, the way that we're able to understand from the beginning what their goals are and what mean like what is meaningful to them and how this will provide value to them. So the training aspect of that and the implementation is where we I think we do really well. Now how do you respond if a team member says this sucks and I don't want to use this software. I want to do it my way. Yeah, absolutely. Tell me more about that. Like that that's that's my first response is I, I want to understand more about that, right? Um, from there, I would ask a lot of questions to try to dig down to find one thing, like one thing that this change would benefit them for. Whether that is just, hey, well, you'll have a task list every day. Like let's start with the task list. Like let's start very small with what is the one thing here that is going to make a difference to you. Then once I can build that trust with them, then from there I can start to build to the second thing and the third thing because 
it is, it's normal. Like it's going to happen in almost every single engagement where there will be team members because I'm proposing a change and change is hard. Change is scary for everybody. And so working through that change management, I have to build trust with them because they don't know me. Like they, I don't want anybody to ever think that we're coming in to try to replace their jobs or anything like that. So they don't know me. There's fear naturally already that the boss has brought in a third party person. To replace somebody. Exactly. So they're like, oh my God, like, oh, if this, because right now the whole thing is like AI is taking our jobs. Mm. So it's like people who have been at companies longer are thinking, oh, is this new system just going to make me irrelevant? Like, and so addressing those fears with people and validating them of like, yeah, I understand why you're scared. I understand that completely. And just listening. And then again, I try to find one, one piece of what we're talking about that would make their lives easier. Show them how that happens. And then from there, I can ask for more because I'm building that trust bank with them to where now I am somebody that they can trust. I'm somebody that's showing them something that will actually make a difference in what it is that they're doing. How do you think about that kind of aspiration related to process that is healthy versus maybe, um, I don't know, too much delusional? Sometimes I experience people as wanting, they, they have a school commute, 8 a.m., driving 15 minutes, and like they're insistent they need a Ferrari to make that 15-minute commute. Um, and in other cases, people are really content to drive a Ford Taurus to mm -hmm. do the same thing. How do you think about like what is the right level of automation, technology, et cetera? What do you cue into in an owner's language to assess how their wants and desires kind of map to what you experience as being useful. Yeah. So first I would say that both of those people are correct. Like that person that needs the Ferrari, that is, that's what they need to get themselves going, to get themselves ready. And the people that are content with having whatever type of car to get them from point A to point B, that is valid. And so I, I think that how, let me just say, I don't think that there's one perfect way to do anything. I think that there are a million ways to get the same thing done. So really our stance in, in what we're doing is I'm not here to give anyone one best practice for their processes or, or anything like that. Instead, I'm here to listen to you and figure out what is important to you and then build off of that. Like there is you, – you said this one time. I don't even know if you remember this, but you were talking about coaching and you said – I, I think it was maybe your personal coach and you're like, my coach is there to help me facilitate a conversation with me and then help me arrive at the answers that I need. And that has like stuck with me. Like, I think you maybe said that like three years ago. And so every time I have a conversation with somebody, I'm like, okay, it's not about me. It's about me facilitating a conversation with them and themselves for them to figure out what is important to them. So for the person that wants a Ferrari, right, at that Ferrari level, I'm going to build them a Ferrari process. And for the people that want the budget, like, just get it done from point A to point B, I'm going to build that process because each company is different and each company has that uniqueness and that is what makes them unique and that's what brings on the doors is because that's their product. Like, how somebody chooses to, you know, put out their processes and how they choose to do it, that's the product that they're selling. And so I... I want to give people what it is that they want, right? If I see something, obviously, that is just glaringly, like, inefficient, right? Um, like if that Ferrari person was driving 45 minutes out of the way because they really liked the gas station over there instead of the gas station that was just on the way to work, I'd make a suggestion that, hey, let's let's Stream stop here. Yeah, <laughs> let's stop here and get gas instead of going all the way out of our way. So it's more so for me about – figuring out what is important to that company. Like what is it that makes them so unique? And that is what's built into their processes. So really figuring out their identity, how they want to do this, how they want this to come across, and then building the best version of that for them. What's the typical size and scale and scope of company that you're working with? Yeah, so it, it really varies, but typically we're we're staying between like 50 to 150, 200 doors. That is really where foundational processes are being built and really where somebody is wanting to grow, whether that's hiring their first team member, hiring somebody else, or even, hey, I want to stop working in the business and I want to work on the business. These are all things that owners have told me. And so that's 50 to 150 doors is where we stay. We will not work with anybody that has less than 50 doors because again, I'm not giving you a process. I'm not telling you the best way to do it. You've 
you've got to go figure it out on your own. It's like you have to figure exactly. People, I think that people under 50 doors, you're still trying to figure out who your ideal customer is, what kind of properties you want to work with, what are the systems that you want to use. A lot of times they don't have softwares. I'm really not interested in giving somebody how to do this. I want to work with people that have figured it out, know what they want, and I want to be like, okay, great, this is where you want to go. We're going to build that process to get you there. So Jordan, I'm curious, you know, I've been in property management for just a short amount of time. You've been in this game a lot longer. And so I'm curious how you have seen processes change throughout your time here in property management. Like how have you observed this change in processes? I think it's probably just more awareness that the process matters, that there should be documentation, more optionality for actually adding automation, the ecosystem's maturing, APIs are opening up. So Mm -hmm. people are getting more of a vision for the idea that that what we're talking about is possible, that it's not a pipe dream, it's not something that belongs to Fortune 500s, et cetera. So there's more democratization, there's more options, and Mm -hmm. there's just a a slowly building appetite for maturity. I think it's got a long ways to go, but at least more people are really convinced that there is a way out from the kind of self-affirming, pat yourself on the back grind of just, you know, muscling it out manually. Yeah. And so whenever Lead Simple was coming up and you guys brought automation into the CRM side, I'm so curious. I've always wanted to know, was that like automatically accepted where people were like, yes, I want to automate this side of my CRM and I'm so excited for these automated text messages and emails to go out? Was that something that was just widely accepted right away? Or is that something that you guys had to really sell on for people to adopt that portion of it? Well, we definitely weren't creating the category. There had Mm -hmm. been multiple waves. There was a SharePoint wave. There was a Podio wave. There was uh, Process Street came in for a minute. So there had already been multiple waves Mm -hmm. in that category, but there was nobody that was really dedicated to the vertical. And so when we came out, I just remember for there being a period of time where we were not considered a part of the solution set. We had launched something, but when people are like, hey, I'm thinking about automating automating my processes, names would come up and we weren't in it. And that was annoying because Leadsimple is already kind of a a fairly well-known in the industry. Um, And sometimes it just takes time to get known in a a category. But there was definitely already a baseline level of awareness of the idea that your processes could be documented. Yeah. Let's call it like the digital checklist piece. Mm-hmm. I think what was different was it wasn't just a checklist, like a sauna, for example. Mm-hmm. It was a checklist paired with a database so that in totality, we have this name associated with this email address is a tenant in relationship with this property and this property is in such and such a, such and such a stage uh, and based on the fields associated with that record we know that such and such an email should be sent out right now yeah that context mm-hmm. was built off of knowing enough about what's going on in the process to right. reasonably assume that something else should happen that was kind of newer and yeah i think that's uh, that's like what's um blossoming right now and it intersects well with what you're working on because mm-hmm. once you have your processes dialed to the point where um, they're thoughtful and there's some light level of automation to me that's like 80 percent of the win the ferrari as it were the extra stuff on top that's cool but it's diminishing marginal utility right. in my mind and it can build more brittleness mm-hmm. into the system gotcha. what you don't want what i've experienced maybe what you've seen as well it is possible for processes to turn into a black box, yes, and that's scary territory. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What do you? How, how do you guide and orient to avoid that black box paradigm? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that definitely making sure that boundaries is a big thing that I push of like where boundaries and goals. Like those are the two things that we identify from the very beginning before we even start a process call. So we break it down into each step of the process has its own dedicated hour and a half call where we are just diving into that one process. So before we start a call, we identify what is the objective that we're really wanting to solve with this process? And is there anything that we want, like that we just don't want to do? Like we don't want to bring in this team member. We don't want it to take longer than, you know, seven days. Like we really define the boundaries there 
of what we want each process to really look like and what is the goal. I think working with that what is the goal mindset first, then as we're like going through the process, if somebody brings up something that's off the wall or it's going in the weeds or it, it relates to something else, it's very easy to then call back to, hey, what was the goal? Like, remember what we're trying to solve here. Remember what we're building for. And then being able to make sure that it fits within exactly what it is that we're trying to do. Goal is really interesting. That's kind of a segue related to operational metrics. Mm -hmm. There's not, uh, I don't see a robust framework for operational metrics tied to processes yeah. in large part because the way the processes are set up mm -hmm. is so kind of one-off and customized. In right. software, there's general tension between a highly configurable system that can do anything, lots of custom fields, versus something that's more convention-oriented. Right. For example, I've been impressed with Property Meld taking a more opinionated stance and saying, we're so niched down on maintenance, we feel like we can get behind these best practices. Mm -hmm. And the upside of that is it's structured data. When you have right. structured data, you can more easily build reporting on top of it the more flexibility you have, the more customizability, it's less structured, it's harder to do reporting. Mm -hmm. where, where do you see your clients at in terms of operational benchmarks and like being able to measure whether or not the processes and this investment was actually like uh, move the needle in terms of, you know, whatever the needle may be, whether it's the amount of days on market or yeah. if it's uh, you know, turn time for a renewal, et mm -hmm. cetera. Absolutely. So we set out at the beginning to figure out what are the metrics that we want to track, right? So each company does differentiate on that. As far as days on market, the market kind of dictates that one. But uh, making sure turns is very important. How long is it taking us to turn a property? And so that is one that we're making sure is built out in the right way there so that it can be checked by like step by step in there to make sure that we can reduce that time. That has been the main like KPI that people have been wanting to work towards. But with the clients that we're working with right now, we're just trying to establish a baseline. And that is like our key point there is let's just establish a baseline to figure out how long is it taking right now. And then from there, we can set goals to where do we want to get to and then start to benchmark out what's working, what's not working. Because when there's no tracking, it's made up. Like it is, oh, it, it only takes us a week to do that. And then you start tracking, you're like, it's taking three and a half weeks for us to do these turns and we want to get it down to a week. Then we go back and revisit the process to say, what is preventing us here from reaching that goal of hitting it in a week. Mm. Then we go back in and tweak the processes from there to then say, okay, here we go. Because to me, I'm all about data. If we feel like something, we're generally wrong. Like I feel like it only takes us a week to do. That's way wrong, right? So collecting that data first, so building out something that can be trackable to then be able to set metrics from our benchmarks to be able to hit goals. Because otherwise, I can't promise you something if I don't even know where you're starting from. And I can't build you something if we don't have a baseline. So that's really where where we start out is just you've got to establish the metrics first because the companies that I'm working with don't have processes in place, don't have the trackability purposes. So a lot of them throw things out to me of like, I want to do this. That's great. But let's get it built first and then we'll track along the way to see where we're at. And then I'll be able to tell you how long it's going to take for you to get there. It reminds me of the idea of location over augmentation. Augmentation is changing things. Location is just figuring out where exactly we're at. Exactly. You don't know where you're at. You don't know what the baseline is. It's hard to actually make changes that you can be confident are improving in the direction that you're trying to head. Exactly. When you do a rollout, typically people either want to go step by step on one process or they want to do everything all at once, which mm -hmm. can be kind of overwhelming. How do you guide or navigate people through the number of processes to work on um, incrementally before yes. turning any of them on and live? We work on one at a time, one at a time. And the way that we have it built out is we have our one call with somebody and then we go and we build that. And we build it in the library in Lead Simple. We build out the full SOP for that specific process. And then on the next call we have, we review that. And we review the entire SOP, we review the Lead Simple uh, process there. And we say, is this exactly what we wanted? Is this what we want to roll out with? So we're doing it one pipeline at a time. We made the mistake at the beginning to build them all and give them to the company and be like, here you go. That was very overwhelming. Like we learned a lesson there that that is not the best way for us to do it. Instead, working on 
each step one at a time and we follow the customer journey. So the way that we do this is we start with if somebody wants a sales process build out, we start with that. Like what does that look like? From sales it goes to onboarding, onboarding property, onboarding uh, owner, and then we go to marketing and so on and so forth throughout the entire process. And so that's the way that we follow it so we can think about, again, that customer journey because whole goal, I want people to be able to keep their clients longer and to help them buy more properties so they can add more properties with the same number of owners. And the way that you do that is through solid processes. And so we think through the customer journey last call that we have is going through uh, retention. How are we retaining these customers? What does that process look like? How do we build that out so that we're having regular check-ins with these owners? And then how do we have those conversations? So that's the last call that we do with somebody. But again, we go through that customer journey and work on one process at a time because that's what we want to build out thoroughly first. And so you typically, am I hearing you say you're typically starting with uh, onboarding? Uh, depends. I mean, if somebody wants to, uh, a lot of people have sales processes built out or they're working with other companies that are building out their sales processes. So I have some people that want from the sales part, from the BDM perspective there of what is the ideal customer, the area we serve, that's where we will start. But if they don't want that, we'll start with onboarding. Got it. And then it go. And then what would be like towards the end on the backside? On um, the backside is day to day like management and retention. Got it. What about maintenance? We get into maintenance. Maintenance is call four that we have. Say it again. Call four is oh, maintenance. Got it. Okay. You know, mm -hmm. Maintenance is hairy. Yeah, it is. Things can get a little unhinged with maintenance. Very much so. At times. So I hear you saying on the one hand, you want to allow people to say, hey, this is how I want to do it. Mm -hmm. And you're going to help them figure it out. At the same time, I mean, surely you must find yourself in situations where you are giving proscriptive advice yes. and best practices, et cetera. What are some uh, examples of like some best practices that you feel have like come up over and over again, like some mm -hmm. common themes? For most of the people that I've worked with, they outsource maintenance. Like they don't even do it in-house. They outsource it to a third party who handles their tickets and does the processing and everything like right. that. And so that is what I'm finding with the customers, so not even doing like it. Maintenance coordination, yes. not actually Correct. trucks and techs, et cetera. Yes. And really just outsourcing as much of the maintenance as possible and then them just dealing with tickets that the third party can't deal with, whether it's after hours or the vendor wasn't on the list or something like that. And at the bare minimum, them handling just that small part of the maintenance and then allowing the third party company to do what they do with the coordination of it. Now, I got to ask you one tough question here. Are you the cobbler with no shoes? What do your own internal processes look like? Oh, my gosh. This is so fantastic. <laughs> I've written them all out. I, really? Yes, I can show you them. Wow. I have all of because my thing is like I, I don't ever want to be hip like hypocrite. And if you're gonna be a sops company Stunning. and you, and you have no sops, we didn't pregame this. No, but I mean, really, I I have written out every single call that we have. I even have an SOP for our internal team meeting of how we structure it. It's 55 minutes and it goes through everything. I mean, I have my sops built out because again, like. How are you going to be a SOPS company and have no SOPS, right? Like, how how can you do that? So that was my, like, number – that was the first thing that I did, Jordan, was I wrote out all of our procedures for everything in the same way that I write them out for everybody else. Wow. Okay. Well, you definitely hedged for this question. I guess my next follow-up question is, it seems like this is something you enjoy. I make up, and this is totally made up. I'm projecting here. My bent is um, less – SOP oriented. I mm -hmm. tend to be more kind of fly by the seat of my pants. You have a background in sales. I make up that your average salesperson may be less SOP oriented. Is that just a made up story? How do you marry and navigate the kind of dynamic freewheeling nature of sales with all of the conviction and enthusiasm that you have for SOPs here? I think that salespeople are a lot like children in the way that children want to push your boundaries because they're looking for what is the process. And I think that salespeople can be taught and salespeople want to be taught and they want to be given a process that works. And that has been my experience is I have people talk about these rainmakers and all that. I've actually met very few of them in my life of people that just want to go out and create havoc and, and like just go sell, 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 sell. 
I have, and this is just my personal experience. I haven't met a lot of those people. Instead, I have people that are like, I want to do a good job. I want to bring on the right clients. I want to do this. How, what's the best way for me to make it happen? What is your proven process for Got how me. you are going to, like how you're selling? Because as salespeople, if I'm going to come in and I'm going to put my name and my reputation on the line for your product, it better be a damn good product. Like I'm having to go out here and put myself out there. If the product sucks, I'm not going to sell it. If you don't have a way that you're already selling this, you've got to pay me a lot of money because now I have to come in and build your sales process for you. If you're not giving me a sales process and I have to build it for you, I'm not just your salesperson. Like I am your director of sales. I am your person coming in and testing it out. So it's like, Salespeople want a process. They want to be told what is the best way for me to go out and succeed? What is the roadmap and how can I go succeed the fastest? Because that's why we're in sales. We want to make more money. And if you don't have a way to tell me how I'm going to go make more money and I have to go figure it out on my own, I don't know. Like you have to be offering me a lot of value for me to want to come into that system to sell for you. You know, whenever I meet a salesperson in transition and looking at a new opportunity, it's very interesting to me to discuss with them how they assess a new opportunity mm -hmm. that has hype and enthusiasm, et cetera. But everything from what is the quota attainment rate of the people that you're talking to? If the OTE is $100,000, what percentage of the current sales force is actually making $100,000? Right. Similarly, what is the quality of the training? What does mm -hmm. the onboarding look like? What does the coaching look like? A lot of these things are really easy to miss on the front side, but it absolutely serves the team member. It serves the business as well, obviously, but that's a really employee, team member friendly sort of thing to do to like bring people into a well-run onboarding process. We're trying at Lead Simple and mm -hmm. we're not getting it perfectly, but there's at least a lot of intent and recognition that the way that you bring somebody in in the first couple of weeks is either going to communicate, hey, we don't know, you yeah. got to figure it out, or like, you know what, we did think about that. We don't mm -hmm. have it perfectly dialed, but conceptually, this is where we're headed, this right. is the approach, et cetera. So yeah, I experience it. I experience mm -hmm. a lot of care there for yeah. team members building that out. I think that as well, in my experience, I found that a lot of salespeople are like sports background, like a lot of people who just did competitive things growing up, a lot of them go into sales because it gives us a rush, right? It's exciting. And so I think that a lot of salespeople are coachable. They want to be trained and, and they want that. Like that is so desirable. And the big thing that I think will help a salesperson who maybe the offered salary is like a little bit less than what they wanted, but the training program and the advancement and all of the things that they're going to learn is so cool that now they're able to get there. And so I think that it's just very important for us to set up our salespeople to be able to succeed and to have processes in place. I think that it is irresponsible of a company to hire a salesperson without a a proven track record of how they're going to succeed or how they are going to be able to hit the amount of money that they're promising them. If you promise somebody $100,000 and you have no real way for them to get there, I think that's dishonest. I think in my personal opinion that that's bad business and you should not do that. And it really isn't much different for other roles, even if no. there's not a commission function to, pre to put people in a position for success is exactly. caring and kind and to ask people to take on a position where there really is no proven track record mm -hmm. without disclosing that upfront, which right. puts the business at a disadvantage, that's not great. Let's leave it here. If you had one piece of advice for people who feel somewhat lost with their processes right now, uh, they feel like they're on the treadmill. It's like Groundhog's Day and yeah. they just feel trapped, which is fundamentally a, a belief system. It's a made up orientation, the idea that I don't have a choice. You always have a choice. Mm -hmm. But for somebody that it's identifying and kind of having these low agency thoughts, what's one piece of advice that you would have for them to get out of that cycle? Yeah, I think that the first big thing is to figure out the direction of where you actually want to be going um, and what you want. Because a lot of times you feel that way because you're comparing yourself to other companies, people that are maybe further down the journey from you, people that are maybe focused on different customers than you are. But really, I found that that comes from a comparison where it's like, I am just not doing it like this person or I'm just not doing it like that. So I think that it really starts with you got to have a conversation with yourself of what is it that I actually want from this? What is going wrong? Am I the problem? Like, am I 
putting too many things on my plate. One of my favorite uh, exercises is from EOS, the Delegate and Elevate, Delegate and Elevate uh, Four Quadrants. Top left corner is the things that you love to do and that you're great at. The top right quadrant is things that you like to do and you're good at. The bottom left is things that you don't like to do but you're good at. And then the bottom right is things that you just don't like to do and you're not good at. Starting with like just documenting out every single function that you do every day. Like and that is from driving to work in the morning to logging out at the end of the day. Write down every single thing that you do within a week's period, a month, however you want to think about that. And put it in the quadrants and figure out what what is falling below the line. Like what are the things that I don't like to do that I'm not good at because those are the things that are holding you and your company back. You continuing to do those things that either you're not good at or you don't like to do, that's what's holding your company back. And that's usually when you're putting your energy into those things that you just hate doing, that is causing the frustration. That is causing you to feel like things are out of control. And whether that is you need to document processes around those things to get them off of your plate, you need to hire somebody in. But to me, delegate and elevate is the first place that you should start to start having that conversation with yourself because a lot of times we are our own worst enemy and we're causing a lot of our own discomfort like you were saying so that would be the first place to start from there you can figure out what you need because maybe you do need processes maybe it's time for you to sell your business maybe you just really hate every like if everything you're doing falls below the line you're in the wrong business man like you've got to figure it out so to me that's the first place that you start is a hard conversation with yourself of what's going right what's going wrong and and really just looking at that and then from there you can figure out what is the next best step for me it's kind of odd and ironic in some ways that the idea of me being the problem is actually a really optimistic perspective because i'm the problem i can change it exactly if other people the problem Yikes. Right. And I mean, maybe management is one of the things that you don't like. Right now, you know, I need a manager. If I get that off my plate, they can make the decisions of, is my team toxic? It, like, So it's really, yeah. If you are the problem, you can fix it. That's the easiest solution that you can have is that you are the problem. Kristen, I see the passion that you have here. I'm wishing you a lot of success for folks Thanks, that want to get in touch and learn more about what you do. Where could they go to do that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we have our website at pmpathbuilders.com or you can shoot me over an email, Kristen, K-R-I-S-T-E-N at pmpathbuilders.com. All right. And I'll be at LSU. <laughs> I'm looking forward to keep crushing it and let's check in in the Thank future. You. That's it for this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. You can check out other episodes along the way. If you're watching this on YouTube, appreciate to subscribe, any comments, I'm always here to engage. If you're listening on an audio platform, would really appreciate a review. It's a great way to help other people find out about the show.